to me, I hear my voice. It's a bad thing. That's why I sing loud, just so you, I don't have to hear, hear me. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Thank you for last week, Marshall, reverence. We needed to hear that, did we not? Verses 1 through 5, how did that impact how you approached today? Because he's beginning to talk about in chapter 5, guard your steps as you go to the house of God. So, what a great reminder. A profound respect mingled with love and awe as reverence, what we heard. Okay, let me pray. Father, thank you for the day, beauty of it, privilege of life to be here t- together this morning, the uh, unique bless- blessing that comes our way as your people when we gather in your name for your glory. And I ask that as we do approach you in, in worship today with, with reverence for you, that that will impact our lives in a way that will become better for you and for uh, living a way in which would reflect the gospel. Thank you for this book and uh, honor our time. Uh, Help me, may the Spirit of God guide us together with clarity of what the Word of God says and what it means for us. And I pray this in Christ's name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Now, remember, much of Ecclesiastes, not all of Ecclesiastes, but much of it, I can even say most of it, has to do with our right understanding of that metaphor about living life under the sun. If we don't get that metaphor, we don't get the point of the book, because what he's presenting to the majority in the Ecclesiastes, is that very idea. Back to chapter 1, right to the beginning. All's vanity, right? Here's our theme. Verse 2, the question, what advantage does man have in all his work, which he does where? Under the sun. And then there we go. And that idea of that metaphor expressing that truth is about Solomon's observations, even experiences concerning life and how it is lived and how it is viewed apart from the Creator. We were in our meeting yesterday, uh, someone made the point to just the, the reality of the fact that we live in an atheistic world. And we may forget that, but Solomon says, I don't want you to forget that. I want you to remember that, because that will help you see where people are at without the Lord and should motivate us then with the gospel and giving people hope that we can gain in him. So much of Ecclesiastes is strictly about life lived at ground level and the dilemma, the dilemma of understanding life by human wisdom alone. You'd call it humanism, couldn't you? The reality of it. Now, sometimes we say things like, well, I just don't understand how people live without God in their life. 
We say similar things like, I can't imagine how people without the Lord go about life. And I understand what you mean when you say that, but what Solomon is saying to us in the book, well, please wake up and smell the roses. Because that's what I'm telling you in this book of the ongoing cycle of emptiness and meaningless and vanity without God. And some of it has to do with how he experienced that in his own life as he drifted away from the Lord. And we know the end. We know the end of that. So, such leads to uh, D. and J. Aikens, I think, well says that it leads us to the reality then when what we end up with is all earthly goals and ambitions when pursued as an end in and of themselves lead only to dissatisfaction and lack of purpose uh, for living. Socrates made the statement, the unexplained life is not worth living. (laughs) Somebody else said, life doesn't provide a key to itself. We need revelation, God's Word. We need God to tell us who we are, why we're here, our purpose in life, where we came from and where we're heading. And that's why we need the book, the Bible. Amen, everyone? Amen? So the question then becomes, then what will people pursue in this world? What will they pursue in life then to gain meaning or significance or happiness or contentment or joy or purpose. Will it be entertainment? Will it be pleasure? Back to chapter 2. Chapter 2, turn there quick. Verse 1, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. (laughs) He had anything and everything he wanted at his fingertips, Solomon. You all with me? But then he said over in 10, 11, verse 11, thus I considered all my activities with my hands had done all the labor which I exerted, and behold, it was all empty. So you're going to get it with entertainment. You can sit and play games 24-7, but it's really going to give you any purpose in life. So what are you, what are you going to live for? What, what, what will be that which will get to you uh, meaning and significance and, and purpose um, and in life? Well, the answer is, the answer is you, you, need to li- you need to win the lottery. Right? Here's a painting of the Renaissance. And here's the guy. He's looking at his money. And she's over there. Somebody said she's over there having her devotions, but she's got distracted. (laughs) And now she's saying, is that ours? (laughs) Whatever. And the title of this, I didn't title this. This is the title of that painting. Money Changer. And his wife. So would you agree with me this morning that much of the pursuit of the things people think will bring meaning, purpose in their lives relates to money and wealth and possessions? Would you agree with that this morning? And I want to tell you today that from chapter 5, verse 8, really over to the end of chapter 6, Solomon is... He is presenting this. Uh, It was Martin Luther who said, if a man will not have God, he must have his idols. He's going to worship and long for 
for something, right? And so what we have, verse 8 and following, is, 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 is that particular reality. Just a couple reminders concerning Solomon so that we think about these things in the context of his life. No one ever had more wealth than Solomon. He didn't know what to do with all of his gold, right? And then also we remember, and I remember because I assigned you Mark chapter 8, verse 35. Did I not? Remember, there's a penalty. There is laps around this building if you don't have that verse. Remember? What does it profit a man if he... The whole world and what? We never want to forget that in the context of all that we're talking about of people and, and life under the sun. In fact, J. Vernon McGee, Deborah, one of your early heroes, listening to J. Vernon McGee when she was new in the faith uh, every day with Gloria Lennon. J. Vernon McGee says this. He, he says in the book of Ecclesiastes is an autobiography of man's life when he got away from God and started living for himself. It's <laughs> quite a statement. So what we have, 5.8, really through the end of chapter 6, is the vanity of life, the vanity of life pursuing money and things. The vanity of life pursuing money and things. If and when God is not real in your life and my life, if he's not real in our lives, and we're not living for his glory, for his purpose, with the goals that he gives to us in his word, then our lives will be centered around ourselves and that which will bring happiness and significance to us. And that's either going to be pleasure, power, prestige, everybody knowing your name, or money and possessions. It's going to fit in one of those categories. So you're going to be pleasure, living for self-pleasure. It's going to be power, authority over others. We're going to get to that right away in verse, verse 8. Or it's going to be prestige and, you know, Hollywood or whatever else and movie star or great athlete. Praise, you know, fine, but it's going to be everybody knowing who you are and that will be your fulfillment in life and you'll find that to be empty. Or it's going to be money and possessions. And so we have a principle, likewise, we're going to st- do at the top end here and then see in the text. And the principle is this. Living for things that only money can buy is, everybody say it, it's vanity. doesn't mean it doesn't get temporary, temporary happiness, or temporary, but not permanent. So living for things that only money can buy is vanity. Now, in verses, uh, verses 8, really in verse 9, we, we have really kind of a, a, a category that relates to this. One level where this issue occurs is stated in verse 8, and let's just look at it, and it has to do with this. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness, and really we're picking up on a theme that he expressed in chapter 4, verse 1. Look there with me, 4.1. And then I looked again in all the acts of oppression which were being done. So he's picking up on that theme again in verse 8. In the uh, righteousness, or to start, a denial of justice and righteousness in the providence, key, key terms, do not be shocked. Do not be shocked at the sight, 
for one official, watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. Now, you say, well, wait a minute, we're talking about oppression of people. Yeah, but why do people in authority take advantage of other people for their own personal what? For their own personal gain. And that's, that's what he, he's conveying here. It was Riken who says, the oppression reaches from the top all the way down to the poor, and the poor would oppress somebody if they had somebody to oppress. Because we're talking about a doctrine here that every Christian should understand, and that is the doctrine of human depravity. And how that fleshes out in people oppressing others for whatever and relates to personal gain as well. And I'm going to be quoting David Jeremiah a lot because I believe he nails this section and this topic better than anyone else. And I'm going to, in just a few moments, we get farther in the text here, I'm going to use his, his, uh, his uh, summary statements and observations about what the text um, is saying. So, here's a statement concerning that very thing of corruption and so forth in the world. He said, human institutions always fall prey to corruption. And because of the presence of wealth and power, governments most of all. The line dividing good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. The government is nothing but human beings gathered together for a particular purpose. Sometimes they make good decisions, sometimes they don't. In, in that regard, looking at the government is like looking in a mirror. If you feel the government should be doing a much better job of governing people, what about the job you're doing and governing your own life? Are you want me to stop? <laughs> okay. Are there integrity issues, health issues, effective use of time and resources? The problem is the same with the principle as it is with princes, principalities as it is with princes. And the problem, in one word, everyone, is what? It's in. And we're foolish to expect the work of government to be any more effective than the lives of its people. Yet at the same time, Solomon says concerning this, this reality of people oppressing other people for whatever personal game will come from that, the reality is, verse 9, he says, yeah, yet at the same time, <clears throat> a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. Now, what's he saying there? There's still some level of benefit having some level of officials or maybe government or bureaucracy over us. Some level of government is better than anarchy. Would you agree with me, right? You say, well, it sounds like we're on the way there if I catch the news. Well, maybe that's so, but we still have freedoms and protections to which we benefit. So what's he, he's just dealing with the reality of life here. He says, don't be surprised about this. This is the way the world around us works. And if you're anticipating in 1924 uh, a new president and, and world peace and prosperity and everything's going to come out wonderful, you, is, you need to wake up from your coma. Amen? Right? Because that's not going to happen until what? Until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and deals. And by the way, catch the scripture reading later on today and how at the end of that psalm it just takes us back to the return of Christ. So verses 9 through verse 17, here we go. The vanity of living for money and things. 
Here's what it brings. Somebody else said, five things you should know about money and things. Verse 10, he who loves money will not be what? Not going to be satisfied. You won't be satisfied, it's evil, so we want you to unload all your money on me today so that you will finally know contentment. Amen? You will not be satisfied, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This, too, is vanity. So the vanity of money and possessions, money and sense. Somebody conveyed that title, not me. And so we put, put verse 10 together this way. And I, again, I'm stealing this from David Jeremiah. I love the way he stated the principle and the application. The more you have, it's true, isn't it? The more you, more you can want. More that you can want. No matter how much money you may have, If you live for money and things, you will never have enough. I'm going to quote about Rockefeller, uh, John D. Rockefeller later. Younger people don't know who he is, but a generation ago, he was our example of uh, who is the richest man in the world today. Yeah, example of him. Well, Rockefeller was um, a generation ago, and he was asked the question, because of his incredible wealth, how much is enough? And you know what his answer was? Just a little bit more. Just a, just a little bit more. So, how much more? The more you have, it's easy. The more that, more that you want. Look with me at verse 11. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So, what's the advantage? What's the principle here? I think it's a good one. He pulls from verse 11. The more you have, the more you want, the more you have, the more you spend. The more you spend. You get the raise and you get, you're able now to get the new what? (laughs) The more you have, the more, you know, you're all looking uncomfortable right? Because this really challenges us, doesn't it? The more you have, the more you want. The more you want, the more you spend. The more you spend, the more you need. The more you need, the more you have to have. Stop the world I want to get off, (laughs) right? It can't be a vicious cycle. (laughs) Look down in verse 12 now with me. The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich does not allow him to sleep. Hmm. The more you have, the more you want, the more you have, the more you spend, the more you have, the more you worry. The more you worry. You can worry. Hmm. Made me think about somebody who told me years ago. He said, My habit for the longest time was when I got up in the morning, I would go to the, uh, I would get the newspaper. That's when, <laughs> when we used to get the newspaper every day. And he said, I would go to the page about the stock market. And I would see how I'm, what's going on, how I'm doing in the stock market. He said, I got to the point that that became such an issue. I couldn't sleep. And number two, I got ulcers. I had to stop it. more you have, more you can worry. Worry about keeping it and so forth. And when he hears, I mentioned Rockefeller. When he was 50 years old, Rockefeller was the world's only billionaire. billionaire. That's when people used to talk about if they had a million dollars, they wouldn't know what to do with it all. Okay? 
but he was a billionaire. His income was $1 million per week. But he was a sick man who lived on crackers and milk and couldn't sleep because he worried so much about his money. There you go. Eventually, he learned how to give money away, and his health improved radically. As a philanthropist, is that kind of man, he lived to celebrate his 98th birthday. <laughs> so, where are we at? More you have, more you want, more you have, more you spend, more you have, more you worry, 13 and 14. Let me read it. Look with the text with me. This is a grievous evil I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owners to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. What's the next principle? More you have, more you can lose. And a cousin, um, Ricky, he's a couple years older than me. Got to see him at my father's uh, uh, funeral and have had some opportunity with with Ricky. And Ricky, uh, as a young man, I don't know if it still works this way, but as a young man was able to uh, get a loan uh, for quite a chunk of money in order to, at that time, it was to buy a seat on the Chicago Stock Exchange in order then to be able to buy and sell commodities and so forth. And from week to week, he would make a lot of money, and from week to week, he would lose a lot of money. And Ricky was constantly of bad health. Now, I'm not saying that's a general rule, everybody, and we're, we're not done if you have wealth, and we all have wealth. We're not done in the text, but it's, it can be a reality. The more that you, you, you can lose it. Jesus said something about that, didn't he? Do I have a verse about that? He said, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and what? And where what? These break in. Now you've got to protect it. Now you get the problem of protecting what you have so somebody else is going to want it, want to take it, want to steal it. We heard noises this morning, didn't we, Deborah? I told her, go out and find out what's going on here. Why? Why? I'm, uh, um, I, I don't know what they would want to steal, but um, I have a nice saddle. Um, but you know, you know what that's like, don't you? You know what that's like going on. Ah, verse 14, where riches were lost through a bad investment. Now verse 15, as he had come as he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. So what's the advantage to him who toils for the end? Now, if you took the principle from 15 and 16, I know what you would say. Here it's talking about someone who may have wealth, and yet he's going to experience what Solomon is moving toward all the time, because no matter what you have, you can't fix this problem. We already quoted Mark 8.35, and what is? The reality is, we say it this way, you can't take it with you. Amen? You just don't see a Brinks truck following a hearse in that funeral procession, do you? So, more you have, more you want, you know, join me, everybody. More you have, the more, the more you have, the more you, the more you have, more worry, the more you have, more you can 
more you have, more you leave behind. It's all vanity on this level, right? On this level. So, hmm. what do we do about this? Because we have a problem, and that is all of us here this morning all have more than we need, right? So I'm talking to a rich crowd. Some of you have more than you need, or some of you have more than what others have of more, but we all have, we all have, we're all wealthy. We all have much more than what we need. So how do we view what we have since God has given to us so much more than our basic needs? Well, God always has an answer to these things, doesn't he? Look at verse 18 now through verse 20. 18 through verse 20. Here is what I've seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun the few years of his life, key, which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is a what? Isn't that great? This is a gift of God. Verse 20, for he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Notice, God's in it. He sees it as a gift from God. And therefore, he can thank God because it's a gift from him. When it's a gift, we didn't do it, it comes from him. Yes, you say, well, I labored a lot of years there in my particular job to gain what I have. Yes, but who gave you the strength and ability and the job in all of his providence? God did, didn't he? So it's all based, and now we're, at, we're back getting the... Uh, we're getting the uh, vertical perspective again now. And now Solomon gets his head on straight and he says, man, here's how to view your wealth as a gift from God. But don't you stop there. Because Jesus had a whole lot to say about wealth. And so the more that God entrusts us with, the more that we have a stewardship with what we have. The more that we have the more that he gives to us, the more that we can invest in kingdom issues, as in missions, as the gospel, as in helping and serving others with what we have in order to be able to have the privilege and the ability to give them hope for what comes next after, their end of the, after the end of their earthly journey. So, oh man, when you study the Gospels, sometime you'd like to do this, also the Proverbs, just check how many times that Jesus is using money, wealth, and things as an illustration of what matters for eternity. Um, so we see it as a gift. Um, oh, I like this one. More you have, more you leave behind. More you have, more you leave behind. Adrian Rogers, Dave, this is for you, okay? Adrian Rogers tells of a man who loved gold. When he inherited a fortune, he decided to redecorate his bedroom to reflect his first love. 
He hung gold parchment wallpaper highlighted by yellow curtains, a gold rug, and a yellow bedspread. He even bought some yellow pajamas. But then he got sick and came down with yellow jaundice. He, he died because when the doctor came to treat him, he couldn't find him. There you go. Hmm. Hmm. Turn to Matthew six nineteen. Hmm. Mentioning our Savior, and let's hear these words that we know, but let's hear them again. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. And then, here's the challenge. Where your heart is, where your treasure is, there is your heart also. So examine your heart. What am I living for? Who am I living for? Right? Because, as Luther so well said, if a man will not have God, he must have his idols. And idols are the things that we can easily want more than we want to live for the Lord and for others. Hmm. So true, is it not? Thanks for letting us turn there. Ecclesiastes, back to chapter 5. All right. Now, We go right into chapter 6 because he's banging the same drum, but from a different angle. He's gone all over to the other side of the drum, but he's he's banging the same thing with reference to this issue of of, uh, under the sun, living for wealth, possessions, and things. So I I would um, remember the chapter divisions are not necessarily inspired, and I, I think this is a bad place for a division because notice how he t- touches on the same topic. And I'm going to read right through, uh, right through verse 6. There's an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it, it is prevalent among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God has not empowered him to eat from them. Even a foreigner enjoys them. This true is vanity. Verse 3, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they may may be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things, and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say, watch this, better the miscarriage than he for it comes in futility and goes into obscurity, and his name is covered with obscurity. It, it never sees the sun. It never knows anything is better than, than him, how, how he's off. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy, see, we're back to the context of 18 through 20. If he doesn't enjoy good things, do not go all to one place. And, and notice again, this idea of a lack of satisfaction in, in what he has. Verse 7, all a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. Hmm. 
Solomon is declaring that life without God, which leads to life without meaning, is worse than never having been born at all. At all. Wow. We, we can't help but always come to Wearsby. The believer who gratefully accepts God's gifts today will not fret and worry about how long or she will live. It's an established fact that people who have the most birthdays live the longest. And I thought about that. Yeah, that's pretty fundamental. Okay? You know, like, okay. <laughs> I'm not sure I had to read that to catch that one. Okay? But if they keep complaining about getting old, they will have very little to enjoy. People who are thankful to God will not dwell overmuch upon the passing years. As the New English Translation says, he's back to verse 20. They will take each day as it comes and use it to serve the Lord. Did Jesus have something to say about that? Seek ye first what? His kingdom, his righteousness, you know. And what's he say? And each day has enough what? Take this day, back to verses 18 through 20, as a gift and how good God has been to you. And if you're grateful for a gift, you have a thankful heart. And if anything should characterize us as his people, it should be that we have thankful hearts. Amen? We preach that to our kids. Do we model that um, in, our, in our own lives? Um, yeah, Ryrie has a statement with reference to, I'm going to move on, uh, verse 8. For what advantage does the wise have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? How does one, the wise, have an advantage over the fool in the reality of, okay, the poor man knows how to walk before the living, but what advantage do they have with reference on, a, on an earthly level? I did a lot of reading on this, and I'm still not positive about what I understand about what he's driving home, except I have a footnote in my Bible. They're not inspired, but it was helpful for me. He says, the wise, the foolish, and the poor are all characterized by desire for things Though the poor, knowing how to walk before the Lord, conceals, the poor man conceals his poverty and his desire. I thought this was even more of a helpful quote back by Jeremiah. He says, God gives us not only the gift, but also the ability to enjoy it. The food in the mouth to eat and the art of the mind to appreciate it. The beautiful earth and feet run upon it, uh, are run upon it. Every component of life down to the smallest molecule is part of his gift. But we cannot enjoy any gift properly without reference to the giver. But the, the quote that I wanted to get to is this. I thought he puts it together. A wise man with the greatest education in the world has no ultimate advantage over a fool when God is absent from his life. One day when we all stand before God, he is not going to ask to see anybody's diploma. And he's be highly, highly, highly educated and still be a fool who is living for the wrong things. And you can be not educated and still be a fool by failing to realize who God is and what he's done for you in Christ. And all of this, beloved, all of this, as we think about this, where people are at without the Lord should burden our hearts with the reality that we have. We have answers. Verse 10 through verse 12, I believe, was best summarized by Derek Kidner. Do I have that up here? Yes. I think verse 10 through verse 11 for people under the sun brings to us this, this doctrine 
of how many view life as just fatalism. Que what? Will be, will be. Life under the sun will commonly lead to a doctrine of fatalism. You say, well, how do you get that? Just listen to the flavor of verses 10 through 12. Oh, good, we got time yet. Whatever exists has already been named, and it's known what man is, for he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he. For there are many words which increase futility. What then is the advantage to man? More he talk doesn't necessarily change anything. Verse 12, for who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime in the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? Here's the $64,000 question this morning. What's my answer to the final question of 612? So look at it again. What's the final question? Who can tell a man what will be be after him under the sun? Who can tell us what comes next? God tells us, does he not? It's appointed unto man once to die and what? The Bible tells us there's a future, that you're in the image of God. So we know, God tells us, you know, and we have the answer for the present, how to prepare people for the future, for eternity. Amen? See, here we are again. Who knows? Remember I told you my, my barber, Ron, um, I don't need a barber much anymore, but when I did, Ron, when talking to Ron, and, and, and he, he loved Isaiah when Isaiah was just a little guy, and, and I'd take Isaiah over there, and he'd he just, he liked Isaiah, and it gave me great opportunity to talk to him, even give him a Bible and so forth. And But Ron said, hey, 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 you know, you die, but in a grave dust, that's it. Don't give me that stuff, you know. Don't give me that stuff. Yeah, I'll give you that stuff. I've never heard that from somebody in the hospital having been told, your time is short. I've never heard that in that situation. Then people begin to know. Why? Because we've already been there. God put what in our hearts? He put eternity into our hearts. And that's what people want to know. Now, are we prepared to give them hope? Living with confidence, right? Living with confidence that we know him, our eternity is set, and we're living here, and we're alive yet. We're alive for this purpose. All who are alive, this morning, raise your hand. We're alive for this purpose to be a light for him, and to give those around us the hope of the good news. Amen? That's our task. That's our task. So, wow, may we be aware. May we be aware of where people are at and what Solomon is telling us. And where Solomon, as a believer, I think J. Vernon McGee's observation is correct, what you end up living for when you are not living for the Lord. And it's a good old-fashioned question to ask one another when we see each other. Hey, how's it going? You living for the Lord? Are you really living for the Lord? Is he the center of your, of your worship and how you live your life? Because you know him and you have hope in him. Let's pray. Let's pray. I finished five, got through chapter six. Is that a sign of the end times? Amen.
Amen. But same theme, isn't it? You just got it. It's the same theme. Father, thank you for your word. Your word really tells us what life is like, what eternity will be like. Oh, we have that hope. (laughs) Who you are, who we are in light of what you've done. We, We thank you for that. And as we see the, the, the plight of the unsaved and the, the fatalism that is there and the, as, as was mentioned yesterday, living in an atheistic context, uh, people are, are, are gaining much but not gaining happiness, suicide and all that goes on and drugs to flip out from reality, searching but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth until, until you open their hearts, and they must hear. Those who are going to believe must hear. And that's our great privilege, to live the gospel and convey the gospel, and doing that uh, in light of what you've done for us. May we never lose sight of the cross. In his name, Christ's name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen.